Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, thank you, Keith. I, I appreciate you returning if this is your second visit. If, if, you, if this is your first occasion, uh, we are looking in First John. Uh, one thing I, I do promise you this morning, because I've heard what some of you have said, I'm not going to use as many big words. <laughs> but I am going to use the word Gnostic. And Gnosticism, it was a major major issue for the church in the first century, especially in the second century, and it just keeps repeating over and over and over again. I've described this as John's last will and testament. His heart is broken for this community of faith for whom he has pastoral responsibility in Ephesus. It's, it's, It's a community that in some senses is in mayhem. There's a section, a group within that church who claim to be in the know. That's what Gnostics are. They have had this experience, they claim, whereby the seed of the divine has been taken out of them. They have encountered that which is spiritual reality, and now they know God. As we discovered yesterday, the fundamental to their thinking is that anything that is material or physical, anything you can touch or handle or see, is essentially and inherently bad. It is evil. And the consequences profoundly affected what they thought about Jesus. Sure, there was a sense he was divine. They did not have a difficulty with that. But for them, God who is ineffable, who is eternal, it was not possible for him to take upon himself human flesh like yours and mine, because it is bad. So, so Jesus may have looked like a man and behaved like a man and, and acted like a man, but in fact, he only appeared to be a man. And it also affected how they behaved, because what you did in the body was not important, because it was inherently evil. And what was essential was that you were a truly spiritual person. They claimed to be in the know over against those who were not in the know. It is for this reason that John writes this letter. The key verse, if you want, is in, is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. This is the key verse. This is the whole rationale for him writing this letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The emphasis is upon that they might know because over and against the Gnostics who claim to have the elite inside track to knowledge. No, no, says John, you can know that you have eternal life. In fact, this word know is repeated over and over again. Listen to this. We know that he hears us 
We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know the Son of God has come. You see the repetition of we know, we know, we know, we know. It's over against the Gnostics, the special elite group who were saying they alone, they knew. When you come to an event like the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention and you hear these amazing testimonies, you hear the story as we did this morning of what is happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Eritrea or last night in India or in Russia. And, and you hear of people who are laying down their lives for Jesus Christ, who are willing to endure anything for the sake of Christ and of the gospel. And you say to yourself, am I at the party at all? Am, am I the genuine thing? Am I the real McCoy? Can I truly know that I have eternal life? I am, am I a real Christian? You must ask yourself that question when you come to such an event as this. Well, John says we can, though. And what he gives for us, and we were looking at over these various mornings, he gives us tests. That, that we can apply to ourselves as he applied to the church in Ephesus and specifically to these Gnostics. We can apply to determine whether or not we truly know God, whether or not we have eternal life, that we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. It's like a doctor who encourages us and ourselves to look at our symptoms or like a policeman looking for the evidence. You've got to look for it. And, and the threefold marks that he establishes are all based upon the character of the God we seek to know. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we walk in the light, therefore we will seek to live a life of holiness and of obedience to God. God is love. It's like cause and effect. If God's love has been shed into your heart by the Holy Spirit, then the second evidence of you being a true follower of Jesus and having eternal life is that you will love one another. And since the God who is light and the God who is love has revealed himself perfectly in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, therefore the third test is, what do you think about Jesus? Do you confess that God has come in the flesh and that Jesus Christ is Lord? We're going to look at that over these next few mornings. Will you turn to chapter 2 and look at verse 3 to 6? John writes, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. What we're looking at this morning is the first evidence, the, the first mark that we are the people of God, that we truly know him. It is a life, as described here by John, a life of holiness 
and of obedience. In Greek thought, um, initially, under writers like Plato and, and, and Socrates, they believed it was possible to know the divine, to encounter God in some sense through the mind, through the use of the intellect. It, it was almost like a form of, of pure mathematics or philosophy where you were stretched and squeezed to your limit of thinking until you had the wow, where you grasped through your mind, essentially, the creator God. But by the time of Jesus and the apostles, the pendulum had swung, and it was much more through a mystical experience they thought you could know God. So you would take a novice, if you were in that Greek tradition, and you would train them. You would give them all the various techniques, perhaps a mantra, how to meditate. And the climax would be, would you be taken to the theater, to a play, and there with, with, with heightened emotion, with with sensuous music and cunning lighting, the, the whole process would be carefully orchestrated until you came to that moment in the liturgy where you would say, I am thou, and thou art I, and you became part of the divine. It was a mystical experience. Initially through the mind, and then the pendulum swings to the emotions. Now, what has happened in the Christian church is that we do the same. We reckon at times that we really can know God just simply through the use of our minds in terms of how we think. And there are many within my tradition who talk about the primacy of the intellect. It is through the mind. Now, of course, the mind is so important because you're using your minds this morning. You are transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is the significance and the importance in terms of how we have been created in the image and likeness of God. But what happens, unfortunately, within our traditions, and you see that after the Reformation, that in their rejection of the Catholic understanding of justification by works, what happened is that people began to believe that you were justified by words. The correct words. So you are not justified by by faith alone, in Christ alone, but you are justified somehow by the ability to explain and articulate how you were justified. That's justification by words. It has always alarmed me, and it still does, that in many of our traditions, we train those who are to be ministers of the word of God in a purely academic environment. We take them from their communities of faith, from the churches of Christ, from the places of worship, and we put them into a branch of academia. And there we train their minds, their intellects, with the handling of the texts with Old Testament and New Testament and church history and systematic theology. And if they pass all their exams, they are therefore qualified to be ministers of the word of God. Really? You know that cannot be so, because when, when you are preaching the word of God, you're not simply lecturing. This is not a form of intellectual communication. When you are preaching the word of God, you are dependent upon Christ by his Holy Spirit, speaking to his people, discipling the people of God through the scriptures. This cannot be simply of the mind. Now let me under underline the fact that the mind really matters. I, I was at university for 11 years. I was a really slow learner. 
My father kept saying to me, are you ever going to get a job? Let me tell you, in the Christian faith, we need people who can think. The mind matters. But what happens is that we have swung, as they did in the Greek world, uh, to the importance of the emotions. And, and therefore, within the Christian church, people think that, that they know God simply because they can tell a story. An experience that they had. They were at a meeting and a person preached and they raised their hand and they came to the front and they signed a decision card and they had a moment of wow where they encountered Jesus Christ and it's a true story. It's a genuine experience and people will relate subsequent experiences of special effusions of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit where they have this heightened awareness of an encounter with Jesus Christ and all of that is true. We need our emotions. Folks, it would be absolutely dire to enter the presence of God and not be able to express how we feel. Do you know my final prayer every time before I enter the pulpit Is that God himself would reveal his presence. Of course he's going to be present. But there's a difference when he comes by the Spirit and reveals his presence. You can feel it in your soul. It is not just of the mind, but of the emotions. But look at this. Look at verse 4. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not know what he commands, is a liar. You notice this. This is very Hebrew thinking. In Hebrew thought, truth primarily is not what you think. It's not what you feel. Truth is what you do. If you know God, you will obey his commands. Now, what, of course, John is talking about is making choices. Some of the choices that you and I make, of course, are not moral choices. And last night... Uh, some of the guys chose to have an Indian. They could have had Chinese. Those were moral choices. Those are not moral choices. Or if you go to buy a television set, you might choose to buy a Sanusi rather than a Zoni because your finances will only allow you to buy a Sanusi. <laughs> Those are not moral choices. But if you are a follower of Christ, if you are one who knows the God who is light, your number one decision is to seek under all circumstances to be obedient. To keep God's word. Now this is more than a duty. It's not just an obligation. You see, if God has captured you, if you've been captured and become a slave of Jesus Christ, you just want to please him. You want to be holy. You want to be holy because he is holy. He's done something to you. I, I so regret that the whole image of holiness is, is something negative for us. It just makes us uncomfortable, people who are trying to be holy. Uh, Ellen, Ellen Glasgow, in her autobiography, talks about her dad, who's a Presbyterian elder. Uh, she said, he was full of rectitude and rigid with duty. He was entirely unselfish and in his long life never committed a pleasure. Now, now, you know what, what I mean by that. There are just people who make you feel uncomfortable, but, but you see, holiness is beautiful. 
We worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And when it is expressed in the humanity, as you see in the person of Jesus, or in the lives of God's people who have been transformed, it just draws you to them. In fact, you want to be like them. Let me tell you, the greatest influence of my life was my dad. I just adored him. My dad, as a young man, wanted to be a missionary. He planned to be a missionary in China with a China Inland Mission. He'd begun his training to go. And his father died. And my dad was the eldest of 14, which is pretty good for a Protestant family, I always thought. <laughs> and so he had the responsibility of raising his siblings, so he became a butcher, eventually had his own business. He was such a character. He, he, had a, he had a limp because of a soccer injury he'd had early in his life. And so he walked in the shop with this limp. And a woman came in one day and said, Mr. Morrow, do you have pig's feet? And he said, no, Mrs., it's just the way I walk. <laughs> I, I, I so admired him because of how, of how he lived. Um, he had an opportunity to buy a business beside him at a great price. Uh, I remember as a teenager saying to my dad, Dad, why didn't you buy it? But he said, if I'd bought that business, I would have put about 10 or 12 people out of work, and how would they feed their children? He lived a life of holiness. He, he provided meat for the presentation convent in Lisburn, and... and Mother, Mother Patrick would come in every week for all the sisters, and, and my dad would stop for everything for Mother Patrick. And they would chat, and they would have coffee together, and I remember it was amazing. Here was my dad in Protestant Lisburn, coming to me at one dinner and saying, you know, you know, Trevor, Mother Patrick really loves the Lord. He employed a, a Catholic manager in the shop. He lost customers, but it didn't matter to him. This was the right man for the job. He planted in my heart what was the foundation for my entire ministry. I loved this man. I mean, he was the softest touch in Lisbon, they used to say. If you have any trouble, go to Bobby Morrow. He'll sort you out. I, I, I say this... It seems almost too much, but I say this. I don't remember any time in my entire father's life where, where I remember him ever saying anything or doing anything for which I would be ashamed. It was attractive holiness. I just wanted to be like my dad. It is how we are to express, but folks, this, this is more in terms of moral standards. Of course it is. It's about what motivates us. That's why John says, if anyone obeys God's word, love is truly made complete in him. Or, or, or our love is completed through our obedience. Well, you know that, that seeking to do what is in accordance to the will of God and obedience, it has to be by pure motives, by right motives. You remember the teenage years with your children. If you had a teenage boy as I had, you, you realized that 
to go into his room required two things. One was an inoculation and the other was a shovel. <laughs> that's, that's part of, of teenage life, especially with boys. I don't know. I don't remember Kerry quite like that. But I remember getting really annoyed, you know, go and get this room cleaned up. I can't take this anymore. You've got to get this room. And, and eventually, slamming of doors. You know, with the teenagers, it's always slamming of doors. And he goes in, and, and after a while, I go back into the room, and it is immaculate. He's had the Hoover and the Duster. The DVDs are in alphabetical order. It is extremely perfect. And he's sitting on the bed with a face like thunder. It is obedience, but not, not out of love. And then, then he says in verse 6, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Well, what, what John is setting out for us in terms of a pattern of self-examination is do we want to do the will of God? Is that what motivates us? Is it expressed in terms of, of compassion because of love that has been poured into our hearts? And, and do we want to do things the Jesus way? What would Jesus do? Remember we used to wear those little banners? Or bracelets, rather? <laughs> I used to make mockery of it, and I thought, I increasingly think it's valuable. What would Jesus do? When I became moderator of the General Assembly in the year 2000, it was a big thing in, in the Republic of Ireland that somebody from, from the South uh, could become moderator. And uh, on my last event in the church, there was a big presentation and RTE cameras were there. And I was presented with this package, which I opened. And there I had to open up in front of the cameras boxer shorts, which read on them, what would Jesus do? Those things are important for us. What would Jesus do? Are we motivated to do the will of God according to his word? Do we want to express it in love because the love is in our hearts? And in terms of how Jesus would respond. Now, I, I say we, we need to hold those three things together in order to express the beauty of holiness. You see, if we are governed entirely by the law, by the word, we end up as Pharisaical legalists. If we're controlled simply by, by being sensitive and compassionate in a given situation, we will end up mushy and devoid of principle in terms of what God has shown to us. And if we're governed on the basis that how Jesus reacted in a given situation in the flesh, we will embrace immediately some sort of situational ethic. What we do as those who are followers of Christ is we express our holiness by, by those three things walking together. We want to obey his word. We, we, we want to live with compassion and sensitivity. And we want to do it the Jesus way as he would have done it in a given practical situation. I, I say this, and I, I haven't time to elaborate upon this, but take, it, take the area of human sexuality. It is so contentious and divisive. I, I, I've said on other occasions, I have never met anyone who is not sexually broken. Never. 
In our fallenness, it is one area of our lives which we struggle with desperately. There is a lack of congruity. We, we have these, these biological desires. We, we have these attractions and the need for relationships and for intimacy and for physical touch. And, and we haven't got it together. We, we just don't know how to do it. And we struggle and we find ourselves broken and inadequate. And, and then you remember from our past and even from the present, we, we make foolish choices or dreadful things have happened to us. When we are confronted with the issue of how we are to react with all the pressures that are upon us in terms of the choices we are to make in our sexuality, we need to hold these three things together the clear teaching of God's word, what he has prescribed, with extraordinary, grace-filled compassion and sensitivity, and to seek in a given specific, specific situation to act in a way that Jesus would act. I, I, I have been asked to write a book by Lion Hudson, and I, I'm not sure I'll ever get round to it. It's a book on the sexuality of Jesus and its implications for the situation in which we find ourselves today. Jesus, you see, in his humanity, our humanity, our broken humanity, perfected for us our sexuality in singleness. Isn't that amazing? He, he, he did so in an extraordinary way in his relationship with his mother, in the language in which he spoke with such intimacy to, to men and to women, of, of how he would have allowed that prostitute woman to come and undo her hair at his feet in extremely sensuous fashion. Him lying on the chest of of John, of how he taught in this area. He, he, he perfected it for us. We, we need to have somehow the compassion of Jesus. I, I, was there any other area which he was more compassionate? I, I can't see it in the scriptures. Whether, whether it was with this, this prostitute or with the woman who committed adultery, he stands with her. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. What I am saying to you, wherever people you find them on this spectrum, whether they're same-sex attracted or, or, or straight or bisexual or wherever they are, folks, these three things we have to hold together if we are people of integrity and of grace. We will not move the goalposts. The Bible is clear. But we, but we act with grace and compassion, knowing our own brokenness, with a desire to do it and to live it the Jesus way. That's holiness. But then John adds something else. And it is woven throughout the entire book. And it's this. For those who truly know God, it will determine the choices they make, yes, but also their attitude to sin itself. 
something has happened to us, to those who are Christians. This is what's distinguishing us from the children of the world. This is what makes us the children of light. Will you turn to chapter 3 and verse 7? Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know we are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. If you are one of the God's, God's people, something has happened to you. Well, two things have happened to you, according to John. The first is that you have received the seed of God. Now, in speaking in these terms, he's deliberately toying with the Gnostics, isn't he? The Gnostics had argued that the seed had been taken from them. The divine had been taken from them to become one with, with God. No, no, says John. When you are with God... The seed is planted within you. The word of God is within you. Listen to this from 1 Peter. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. That's why when you're involved in mission, in, in discipling, uh, in evangelism, you are, you are sowing the seed. You are sowing the word of God, this word that is so powerful, is implanted in the hearts and lives of those who are his people. When, when, when Paul the Apostle talks about the scriptures as that being our authority and as coming from God, he uses an extraordinary metaphor. It is of breathing and speaking at the same time. All scripture has been given by the breath of God. Well, well, what is happening here is this lovely picture of a person breathing and speaking, as I am speaking now. The, the, the air that I breathe, the oxygen is coming across my larynx, so that as I breathe, I speak. And as I speak, I breathe. They are inseparable. So that when the Spirit comes, the seed, the word does something. Well, this is what happened in creation, wasn't it? When the word was without, the world was without form or void, there was the moving of the Spirit and God spoke, you see. Let there be light. And there was, and there was light. This, this word, this seed that brought into being creation 
has been planted in the heart of those who are his people. And secondly, those who know him have been born of God. You can't be a Christian, you see, unless you're born of God. I, I find it extraordinary that people talk about Christians and born-again Christians. There are, there are only one type of Christian. You, you can't be a Christian unless you're born of God. But what often people mean is they have had a certain conversion experience, which means they are born of God. But, but there are many people who are born of God who have never had such an experience Do you think I'm born of God? My wife, you see, has never had a conversion experience. Her father, Glen Owen, raised her within the Christian family. Perhaps at some time when she was a child, she made a response and said, Jesus, I want to follow you more than anybody else in the world. Perhaps she, she doesn't remember. And she went to BRA, and she was surrounded by folks in the, in the, in the Scripture Union, you know, who all of these extraordinary testimonies of how they were in a certain place, and they were, it was dramatic and amazing. And she would go home to her dad, utterly distraught, and say, am I really a Christian, Dad? I, I've never had these experiences. And, and her father would say to her, every time, read First John. Read First John. You see, it's not the experience itself. It's what the Holy Spirit does to us. It will be expressed in different ways among different people. But, but what the Spirit does when we are born of God is that he gives us a new nature. He, he gives us a new identity, a new appetite. So that everyone who has been born of God and has the seed of God within them, they long to be like God. They want to live a life of holiness because they have been given this new nature. And then John adds, which is really quite controversial, a rather dramatic phrase where he says, no one in Christ keeps sinning. No one born of God will continue to sin because you have the seed of God, because you have the spirit of God. Now he's already said, has he not, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So now he's saying, if you have the seed of God, if you have the spirit of God, if you have this new nature and new appetite, there is not sin. Well, of course, this is a theologian's delight. Uh, they, they would just write reams on this. And depending on which tradition you come from, you will get a different answer as to how you handle this. If you come from a Roman Catholic or Lutheran background... Uh, you will be told you must distinguish here between a venial sin, which is normal sin, and mortal sin, which is a sin unto death. I discovered what mortal sin was when I, when in Dublin, I, I, I was, I'm, an, I'm an honorary member of one of the most exclusive golf clubs in Ireland because I was the minister in Lucan. But I don't play golf. <laughs> and I said this to my neighbor who said, that's a mortaler. That is definitely a mortaler. They make that distinction, and if you've come from the holiness and the Methodist tradition, you, you'll talk about voluntary sins and involuntary sins, and the Reformed people, they talk about habitual sins and persistent sins. Well, surely we have to understand this much more simply than that. 
We don't have to engage in this theological gymnastics in order to try and understand what John is saying here. I think what he's saying is this, is that because you've been born of God and have received the seed of God, you have been brought into a new community of faith. You have eternal life. You see, when, when, when John talks about eternal life, how, what he means by this is because he's thinking as a Hebrew that, that there are two ages. There is the present age and there is the age which is to come. The age which is to come is the age of eternal life. It's the age of shalom. It's the age of the kingdom when God comes and exercises his sovereign rule through his anointed. So, so when you have been born of God and have the seed of God, you are brought into the age which is to come. Already. Because the kingdom has come. Because the king has come. And therefore you are a participant in eternal life. Now, if that is the case, this life is characterized, the age to come, by a life of holiness. It's a community without sin. That's the ideal. That's ultimately as it will be. You see, the Gnostics were saying it didn't matter. If you knew God, what you did in the body was insignificant. It was unimportant. No, no, says John. If you have the seed, the life, the spirit, if you are born of God, you will live as those who are participants in the age which is to come, which is eternal life. You will hate sin. I found one of the best illustrations from this from Professor F.F. Bruce, who's as you know, one of the most eminent New Testament scholars. He, he was from the Christian Brethren tradition and was professor in Manchester for many, many years. He, he was in the vanguard of evangelical scholarship, and I've just warmed to this man more and more over the years. He uses this illustration in this passage. He says, when a boy goes to a new school, he may inadvertently do something out of keeping with the school's tradition or good name to be told immediately... That isn't done here. A literalist might reply, but obviously it is done. The boy has just done it. But he would be deliberately missing the point. The point of the rebuke is that such conduct is disapproved of in this school. We do not do this sort of thing around here. In the age which is to come, we don't sin around here not if we have the seed and the life of God and there are just a couple of implications that John draws from this and with this I'm going to close it means in practice if this is what has happened to us if we have this mark if this is evident in our lives we will approach the coming of Jesus Christ with confidence and hope. Look, look at verse 28. And now, dear children of chapter 2, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Whether this is at death or at the second advent, when Christ comes, we, we are in anticipation of what ultimately will be. Now, I think you probably know I've quite a you know, quite a history of health issues. 
And so as I've got older, I have collected what I call my ologists. There's hardly a part of my anatomy now which I don't have an ologist for. I had a brain tumor, and so I have a neurologist, and I can't hear my right ear. So I have an audiologist, I can't see in my right eye. I have an ophthalmologist, I have a stents in my heart. I have a cardiologist. I have an enlarged prostate, so I have a urologist, and so it goes on. I just collect these ologists. This body is giving way, I'm telling you. Before your eyes, the tent is about to cave in. And I am living in anticipation and even excitement about this new body that I have been promised in Jesus Christ. My only prayer is, it does not come in a flat pack. <laughs> if it comes in the flat pack, I think I'm in the other place. I get palpitations driving past Ikea. Whatever gifts God has given to me, they are not in my hands. I want to tell you that. I am looking forward to this. But what is in my heart more than anything, and what excites me, is that when I get to glory, it is not that I'm going to be in an eternal Christmas morning where I'm going to get and get and get forever. No, no. I'm going to be set free where I'm going to be able to give forever. I'm going to be able to love the Lord our God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. And I will love my neighbor as myself. And sin will be no more. That's what we long for in terms of what is to come. And then he finishes. What does this do to us? Well, it just leaves us in stark amazement that this has happened to us. That God has done this amazing thing in us to bring us into his family, that we are children of God. Look at that, chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Why, why has he called you? I don't know. Why has he called me? I have no idea. Why I'm in there, I, I'm amazed. Because ultimately, love has no reason. He's just chosen, chosen us. When, when, when we were in Bangor, we, we decided to get a puppy dog. Uh, and we, I remember we, we went down the peninsula to a breeder who did golden retrievers. And, and we got Penny. And she was like an Andrex ad. I mean, just delightful. But when we went to pick the puppy, um, the, my, my son was with me, Peter. And, and, and the, these were you know, running around, and this little one, this, this little puppy came and licked Peter's hands, and he picked it up, and it started licking his face. And, and the owner said, don't, don't take that one. Um, she won't show well. That's the runt. And Peter heard it, and he said, Daddy, I want this one. I want this one. The weakest. The one that was the smallest, the one with the least potential. He just chose us. I find it is it amazing. He's chosen the weak things of this world, the things that are nothing. And he's called us to be his, his people, to be children of light. Why? Caris's father told me a story once that he was in a house in, in South Wales. 
And, and they, there were two children. One, one was a biological son and, and the other was adopted. And you know how cruel children can be to each other. And the biological son said, said to his brother, you, you know, my daddy is not really your daddy. And the adopted little boy said, listen, my daddy chose me. You just come. <laughs> My father chose me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Let's stand as we sing this we trust you've enjoyed this podcast if you'd like to make a donation to support the work of bangor worldwide please visit www.worldwidemission.org donate